Um, and she's going to read a text from there. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant. Yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and into seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Thank you very much, Miss Ramona. As we consider this text today, I, I do hope if you have a copy of God's Word with you that you would join me there. We're going to uh, look at the text itself several times. As we think about what Paul is writing here, let me ask you a question. How many of you really appreciate a sure thing? Right? Not, not something that has pretty good odds to happen, uh, not something that's fairly low risk, but an absolute guarantee. Whether this is what you're basing your schedule for today around, whether this is what you're investing in, how many of you like assurance of what is going to happen or what is not going to happen? Right? I think most of us fall into that boat. We don't really like things that are up in the air, things that are shaky, that are possible, that are so-so. Well, Paul here today, as he has been through much of Galatians, is once again showing us how, reminding us of the truth that when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ, what we find is a sure thing. But today he's going to do it in a little bit different way, and I think that we can appreciate a little bit of nuance in the way that he's showing this to us. So two things that we'll see today for those of you that really like to take notes and keep up with uh, outline and that kind of thing. So the two things we're going to see is the first one is a concrete example that proves that salvation never came through the law, right? So, there, so sometimes there's this thinking that, that for a while during the Old Testament period that salvation came through the law, but then after Jesus came, it swapped, it switched, it changed, and now it used to be by the law, but now it's by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's going to make very clear, that's not how it ever worked. Salvation has always been a promise of God to be received by faith. So that's the first thing that we'll see. And then the second that we'll see is a, a beautiful reminder that God's covenant with us is unlike any other. This covenant that God has made with us through the blood of Jesus Christ is unlike any other covenant that's ever been made. So look in the text with me, Galatians chapter 3. For those of you in the middle section, I'll give you a little light uh, if you're reading in a print copy. But Galatians 3, beginning in verse 15, said, To give a human example, brothers, 
Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. All right, let's pray together, and then we'll consider this text and exactly what Paul's telling us here. Father God, I am thankful. I'm thankful for the reminder today that Lord, that we do not earn our salvation, that we could not earn our salvation. Father, that it comes by faith alone. And so, Father, we trust that since we cannot earn it, but Christ has earned it on our behalf, and we receive it by faith, that we also cannot lose it. And that whenever we become your children through faith, that we are your children forever and ever. Father, I thank you for that promise. I pray that you would reassure our hearts today. Father, I know that there are brothers and sisters here today that during their life have questioned their salvation, have questioned if they're good enough, have questioned if you would really receive them, if you would really forgive them. I pray today, Father, that you would remind them that you absolutely would. And Lord, as we see today the truth that the new covenant, the covenant that you've entered into with us, is unlike any other covenant. Father, I pray that we would be more and more thankful for who you are and what you've done on our behalf. So be with us this morning. Help our hearts and minds to be focused for this brief while on the truth of your word as we study it together. And let our time of worship here continue to be sweet as we enjoy the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so what Paul is saying here, I know that it's wordy because Paul is a wordy guy, right? Some of us are that way. I write long sentences, Paul writes wordy sentences. That's okay. It doesn't make him unclear. It just means that sometimes we have to spend a little bit more time slowly and carefully looking at what he's writing down for us. But, but Paul here starts out talking about something that's less familiar to us, very familiar to his, his original audience, this idea of a covenant. And we talk about a covenant. What are we talking about? We're talking about an agreement, a contractual type agreement that whenever they entered into it, as he says in verse 15, this, even if you have one that are made between two men, you can't change it later, right? The contract is the contract. The covenant is the covenant. Once it's made and both parties agree to it, it's set in stone, if you will. Right? So he says, y'all know how covenants work. Somebody makes a covenant and both people keep their ends and nobody's able to break the covenant. And then he references in verse 16 promises that God made to Abraham and to his offspring. What you have to recognize is he's using those words covenant and promises interchangeably. So really what, what Paul is saying here is y'all know that covenants are trustworthy. And y'all know that God made a covenant with Abraham. With Abraham and with one of his offspring, right? Part of the promise that God made to Abraham was one day you'll have a descendant. And through that descendant, salvation will be offered to all the nations of the whole earth. 
So that's a promise that God made. And Paul's reminding us that that offspring was Jesus. So let me kind of sum up what he's saying here. Verses 15 and 16. Guys, y'all know that if there's a promise made, the promise is going to be kept. And God promised that salvation would come to everybody by faith. That's what he's saying here. Which tells us if it's by faith, it's not by our works. It's not by the law. It's not by the old covenant. It's not by anything else. It's only by faith. And and then he doubles down on that in verse 17. He starts talking about the law, or as we might call it, the old covenant, that came 430 years afterward. And again, I don't want to get too deep into it because there's another part that I want to spend more time on and we've seen this multiple times in the book of Galatians but he's saying here guys God made some promises to Abraham yes later he also gave the law but that didn't change his promise right he made a promise and then he gave the law but giving the law didn't annul or get rid of his promise I'll give you an example like this so if I go home tonight And I tell my kids, y'all, tomorrow we're going to get ice cream. They'll be very excited. And so then tomorrow morning I wake up and I say, guys, I've got to go to work. Does that mean that we can't get ice cream? Just because I have to go to work. No, it just means we're going to get ice cream later, right? Those two things are not mutually exclusive. I can promise my kids that we're going to go get ice cream. And I can get up and go to work in the morning and still take them to get ice cream. What they did here is they thought, well, if God gave, if God made a promise and then God gave the law, it must have meant that he didn't really mean his promise. Right? Like my kids might think, well, if dad has to go to work, that means we're not getting ice cream today. No, that's not true. That's not true. You're just misunderstanding how these two things are related to one another. God promised that salvation would come through faith alone and Christ alone. And later he gave the law, but that doesn't change the fact that salvation is still going to come by faith alone in Christ alone. There was just a misunderstanding of how those two things related to one another. And in just a moment, we'll talk about how they relate to one another more. But point one this morning is this. God's blessings are only dependent on faith. They're dependent upon you having faith in Jesus Christ. Not that and the law. Right? God's not adding those two things together. God's not taking away his promise and replacing it with the law. God's not adding the law to his promise His promise was, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And that's set in stone, and that does not change. And that will not change ever, brothers and sisters. That's what Paul is trying to tell us here. So then there is the question of, well, well, if, if God was still going to give salvation by this promised offspring... If God was still going to allow people to be saved by faith, then why did he even send the law? Why even make a covenant with Moses? Why even tell Israel all of these laws and all of these things that they needed to follow? Which is a great question, and it's a fitting question. And Paul addresses that question in verse 19. He actually begins with that question. Why then the law? 
And then he gives a, a very simple answer. It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. We'll stop there and look at the rest of 19 in a minute. Paul says, well, if God promised salvation, then why did he even send the law? Why even send it in the first place? It's just confusing us. And Paul says, brothers and sisters, the reason that God sent the law, I believe what he's saying here is God sent the law in order to help us see how sinful and rebellious we really are. You see, here's the thing. If we don't have the law telling us what we should do, we don't even know how far we are off of where we should be. We don't even know how many times we have sinned. We don't even know how wretched we, how evil and sinful we on our own really are. It's as if God looked and said, they don't even know how bad they are, so I'm going to give the law in order that they'll understand that they really are sinful people. Right? The law was added because of transgressions. It was given to us so that we could see how perfect God is. He keeps this law. And how imperfect we are. Now, it does a lot of other things. That's not the only thing that the law does. But it seems to be what Paul's highlighting here. It was added because of transgressions. The bottom line is this. God gave, at least here, the bottom line is this. God gave the law to show us that we are sinners, not to show us how to earn salvation. Okay? It helps us to understand that we are not righteous and that we need a Savior who is. So point two this morning, I know some of you don't like it when I do this, but these points are making one long sentence today. Point one... God's blessings are only dependent on faith, point two, which is good news for us. This is good news for us, brothers and sisters. The fact that God's blessings and his salvation and our, him accepting us and him promising us eternal life, that comes by faith alone and not by following the law, and that's good news for us. You know why? Because none of us have followed the law. None of us are perfect. Never have been, never will be. None of us have done all the things that we should do. None of us could earn, even if the law could earn you eternal life, none of us have followed it. We've all fallen short. We've all broken that thing over and over and over. The more you know about the teachings of God's word, the more you know that you're not lining up with that standard. Your life doesn't look like the standard that God has set for what it should. If you had to earn your own salvation, we'd all have no hope. So praise God, there's hope through Jesus Christ. Then in the rest of verse 19 and verse 20, and this is really where I want us to camp out for a little bit this morning because we haven't seen this aspect in the book of Galatians. But Paul, I believe, let me go ahead and give it to you this way, I believe that he is, he is contrasting the old covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses where he came down and he gave the law, the teachings of the Torah. He gives this to Moses on Mount Sinai. And I believe that Paul here contrasts that and the new covenant. The covenant that we are in with God. The covenant that you enter into when you have faith in Jesus Christ. I think he's, he's showing us differences in these two. And let me just say on the front end, 
Praise God that we get to be part of the new covenant. Because it is so much more glorious and more perfect and more trustworthy on our side than the old covenant. Why is that? Well, I'll start at the beginning of verse 19 again. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That's Jesus. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, that may not be as clear to you about the new covenant as I made it sound like it was going to. But here, Paul points out, I believe, some deficiencies in the old covenant. Some of them we understand more fully than others. Some are a little bit difficult to understand exactly what he's talking about. He knew what he's talking about. The Galatians, uh, the people in Galatia obviously knew what he's talking about. We've missed some of it in the translation. But in that second part of verse 19, when he's talking about the law or the old covenant, he says, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And then he talks again about this intermediary. An an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So he's telling us that that the old covenant had this go-between. Right? That's what an intermediary is. Some of your translations say mediator, which is probably a a good translation for us. A a go-between. If you're trying to picture what it's talking about, can you remember, like, maybe one time in your life, it was in, like, the eighth grade... And you had a crush on this guy or this girl, depending on who you are. And, and you really wanted to ask them if they would go to the dance with you or something. But you were afraid to ask them on your own, right? Because if you go ask them and they say, no, it's embarrassing. So what do you do? What do you do? You, that's right, Don. You ask somebody else to go ask them for you. Hey, hey, Adam, will you go ask Amanda if she likes me? Right, that's what that's what you do. You add you, and so in that situation, Adam is the intermediary, right? He's the mediator. He's the go-between. He goes from me to Amanda and finds out something, and then he comes back to me. Well, in the old covenant, Moses was the mediator. God comes down to Mount Sinai, and the people of Israel stay at the bottom. And Moses goes up to the top, and he meets with God, and God gives him the instructions and tells them what they need to know, and he goes back down, and he tells them all the things that God told him. And then he continually represents the people, right? He goes into the tent of meeting. The people do things that they shouldn't do, and they say things that they shouldn't say. And Moses goes into the tent of meeting, and he he goes into God's presence, and he asks for forgiveness for the people for all the things that they've done. And he's the mediator, Moses goes back and forth between the people and God. But here, Paul's telling us that although that sounds like it's a pretty good system because, right, Moses is a pretty good leader. He's pretty high up on the chart of leaders in the Bible. Even though Moses was a really great leader, and although God used him to do extraordinary things, brothers and sisters, we have to remember this, Moses was still just a man. He was an imperfect man. He was a sinful man who didn't always do things the right way. 
There's even punishment for Moses that we see in the Old Testament. And so I, I think Paul is trying to get at this here when he's saying that, that you have the, the Old Covenant, the law put in place by angels through an intermediary, but the problem with an intermediary is it implies that there, there's more than one. And he contrasts that with, but God is one. So there's this, this weakness that you have God on one side and you have people on the other and the person representing the people is imperfect. So, so what would be the perfect scenario if you're tracking with me? You say, well, well how else could it work? What else could you have? Well, well, just imagine this, since God is one and God is unified and God is perfect. What if, just entertain this for just a moment. What if you had a covenant where God was on this side and God made promises to his people and God was on this side representing the people? Right? You have, instead of having God... And Moses, what if you had God and God? So God is representing the promise that is made, and God is representing the people. What, that would be an amazing covenant, right? If you had that kind of covenant where God was the guarantor and God was the go-between who was representing the people, then we would know for sure that everything was going to be carried out the way that it should. Do you know, do any of you happen to know of any covenants like that, where you've got God on this side and God on this side representing the people? Because I do. There's this one that's called the New Covenant. If you want to flip over to Hebrews chapter 9, I'd like for us to look at a couple verses here. And Hebrews does such a good job. The writer of Hebrews, we don't know exactly who it is. The writer of Hebrews does such a good job of helping us understand these things. Hebrews chapter 8, you can read that later if you want to. I think it even shows these deficiencies in the old covenant that we we're just talking about in short. It shows them at length. What we're about to talk about, the glory of the new covenant, contrasting it, it shows it in, in chapter 7. It shows it in chapter 9. And that's where we're going to look is in Hebrews chapter 9. Let me read to you, beginning in verse 11, about this new covenant. Now, if I sound excited, it's because I am excited. I've been thinking on this all week, and I've been very impatient about the opportunity to share this with you. Hebrews 9, 11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, you hear that word, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, and here's our word, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, there's a lot more here than I have time to really go into 
in depth like I'd want to this morning. But let me highlight a couple things. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9 is doing what I believe Paul's doing in Galatians 3. He's contrasting the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In verses 11 through 14, he's doing that. And then verse 15, he even uses the words New Covenant and First Covenant. So, under the Old Covenant, we find this. There, there, there's a high priest, a mediator between God and the people. When, when one would die, there was another one. But, but there was a high priest, and there was a meeting place where the high priest could meet with God. Sometimes it was in a tent. Eventually it became a temple. And there were blood sacrifices. Animals were killed. Their blood was offered to buy the forgiveness of the people. So we see these things. We see that in the Old Covenant. But you have to understand this. All of these in the Old Covenant were just copies of the real thing. They were like shadows of the real thing. It, it was a high priest, whether it's Moses, Aaron, whoever the high priest was, they were imperfect men. And, and, and the tent was good it gave a place to meet with God, and the temple was better, and it gave a place to meet with God. But it wasn't the actual eternal dwelling place of God. It was something made by human hands. right? And, and you did have the blood of these animals, but it's the blood of imperfect animals. And it couldn't secure an eternal redemption for us. But, as, as the writer of Hebrews shows, in the new covenant, it's all better. There's still a mediator. There's still a high priest. But it's not Moses. It's not Aaron. It's not me. It's not some other. That's not how this works. You don't come to me and I talk to God on your behalf, brothers and sisters. No, the mediator of the new covenant is Jesus Christ himself. Praise God. You have direct access to God. You don't have to go through me. You don't have to go through anybody. You can go directly to God himself. Jesus Christ, this I believe is the most important difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the covenant. Now you can make an argument for it being secured by his blood. I think those two go together. But here's the truth, brothers and sisters. In the Old Covenant, what problem did they have? You had God on one side, and you had the people on the other, and you had an imperfect mediator. We said, man, what if you just had a covenant with God and God? And praise God, that's what you have in the New Covenant. You have God making promises, and Jesus, who is God, as the mediator. God on this side, and God on this side. A perfect covenant. The one that represents us. The one that has secured an eternal redemption, as it says in verse 12, for us is Jesus. And when he does the securing, you know that it's secure, brothers and sisters. There's so much more about this new covenant that's greater and more glorious. The old, the old covenant had a tent or a temple you know where Jesus goes to meet with God, the Father? Directly into the throne room of heaven. To the actual eternal dwelling place of God. 
In the old covenant, you have the blood of bulls and goats. In the new covenant, you have the blood of Jesus Christ. Everything about the new covenant is perfect. Where we messed up the old covenant, right? We couldn't keep the law. We couldn't do the things. A human was imperfect, and he was the mediator. In the new covenant, God secures all those things by himself. He makes the promises. He died the death. He does the mediating to ensure that none of those things go wrong. So point three this morning is this. And they are secured by Jesus. Or, and Jesus secures them. So we put it all together. God's blessings are only dependent upon faith, which is good news for us, and Jesus secures them. He's the one through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his intercessory mediatorial work, who guarantees that if you have faith in him, you have salvation. There is no doubt. So that's where we began this morning. We wanted assurance. We wanted a guarantee. We wanted a sure thing. Brothers and sisters, there's no more sure thing than salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. I want to finish with this. Paul winds this up in the last few verses here, verses 23 through 29. He just sums up this truth. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. For if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Brothers and sisters, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you have righteousness. You have become a child of God, and you will be Forever, As Alex Trebek used to say on the commercials, your rates will never increase and your coverage will never decrease. Amen? That is the truth of the new covenant. It is set. It is promised. It is secure. Because God is the one that's done all the work. What do we do? We have faith in Jesus Christ. So the question then becomes this. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you believe all that the Bible says about him? Is he the Lord of your life? That you are following him and you are doing what he calls you to do, even against what you might would want to do, in many instances contrary to what the Bible calls you to do? I can't answer that question for you. But I trust this morning that you can answer that question. Not what does everybody else think about you. Not what game have you played for years. You know if you are truly following Jesus Christ or not. And if you are, you have reason to praise God this morning, brothers and sisters. Because your, your redemption is secure for all of eternity. But if you're here 
and you don't have faith in Christ, and you aren't really following Him, then, brothers and sisters, this tr- the truth of this text is that you have no hope because there's no other way to get to heaven. I want to invite you to stand this morning, and if, you, if you're unsure about your faith and your eternal redemption, I ask that you would come and let's have a conversation. Let's talk about how can you know for sure? What does it feel like? What would you do? How would you understand that you are a follower of Christ? Let's know for sure about that and not have guesses or possibilities. If you're here today and you know that you're following Christ, I pray that this word, that this reminder calls you to praise Him, to be thankful to Him for who He is and what He's done. So this morning, I invite you, Brother Shane has chosen a hymn of response that is very fitting for these thoughts and the truth of the eternal redemption that we have through Christ. So you, you sing if you want to sing, you pray if you want to pray, and you come here and I'll pray with you. I'll answer questions that you have if you have those things on your heart. But you do what the Lord's leading you to as he leads us in a hymn of response.